This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And I am not afraid, nor do I loathe, that we have two guests (laughs) with us today. (laughs) I'm actually very excited. Uh, We have Mel and David from A Strong Sense of Place. Welcome, y'all. Hello. Happy to be here. How are you guys doing? Doing pretty you know, good. You know, better I, better than <laughs> Raul Duke. <I> think. <laughs> right? Well, I was gonna ask before we even got into this, like what I, I did ether before we started recording. What drugs did you guys <laughs> Did we all do the same one? We should probably should have synced up to make sure we didn't all take the same thing. I took oxidized adrenaline, so <laughs> I am ready to go. <laughs> I just took a handful of pills. I'm not sure mm-hmm. what they were. It seemed okay. appropriate. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Damn it. I only drank water. <laughs> I'm well, always be, the nerd. The, yeah. the, control, the control group, I guess. Yeah. I mean, somebody's got to be in charge. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to talk about Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. What's the subtitle? A Savage Journey to the Heart of the American Dream by Hunter S. Thompson. Um, but first, just in case our listeners don't know, Mel and David, can you tell us a little bit more about A Strong Sense of Place? Uh, you know, and this was an interesting book for us, I think, to talk about together. So maybe kind of fill in where that came from. Sure. Um, Strong Sense of Place is a website and a podcast dedicated to literary travel and books with vivid settings. So in our show, we pick a destination We give a little bit about the history and the culture, music, food, all of that really fun stuff, why as a human you might want to go visit there. And then we discuss five books that took us there on the page. So this is pretty fun to be talking about Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas because it's a good way to talk about Las Vegas (laughs) and (laughs) how accurate this depiction might be for people who go there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) have any of us been to Vegas? Oh yes. Yeah, many yes. times. Yeah. Yeah, I've been two or th- between two and four times for, <laughs> for <laughs> CES. I don't remember. They kind of blur together because I was just there for to do work stuff. But <laughs> but I've been there a few times. Yeah. I have never been, David. You just said many times in a way that mm, means something. <laughs> Some significant um, in some way. So. Back in the 90s, uh, warning, I'm old. Um, Back in the (laughs) 90s, uh, when Mel and I were working for a web production company, we would frequently go blow our uh, 90s dollars in Las Vegas. We lived in San Francisco. Yep. Sure. Okay. So you were making, you know, a pill power drive from San Francisco to Mm. Vegas. (laughs) We did do the drive twice 
with a group of about 10 people each time. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, it was not pill-fueled, but sure. aside from the drivers, there was a lot of drinking going on. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We were going to a rockabilly festival called Ooh. Viva Las Vegas. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And that drive across the desert is weird. Even if you're sober, it's a weird experience. Yeah. Once we went from San Francisco to Los Angeles, saw a rock show in Los Angeles, <laughs> left there at 1 a.m. and drove to Las Vegas from there. We did. Wow, that was a really long ride. And yeah. you're still here. Yeah. And we lived through it. It's true. I will say the first year we drove, so we rented like a 15-passenger van and loaded it up with like 10 people, and we drove from San Francisco to Las Vegas, and we drove back. The drive back after a long weekend in Las Vegas way less fun than the drive there yeah so the second year we dropped the van and flew home yeah mm -hmm. much sure. better yeah sure. <laughs> and how many of us had read generally andrew and i don't read things before we read them for the show sometimes that changes with guest episodes or special episodes i don't think either of us had read it had either no. of you yeah i did i read it again old back in 1983 when i was about 18. Okay. Um, that would be an interesting age to encounter this, it, <laughs> this book. I, bet. I can tell you it fell really differently this time. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Be interested to dive into that. Do you remember, Dave? Because like, I think my first cultural memory of this book is when that movie comes out in the late 90s, the Terry Gillum, mm -hmm. uh, Depp and Del Toro movie, which I don't plan. To, I don't need to see it. That's fine. Um, but I like that's I re I remember that imagery and commercials at the time and like knowing that people were interested in it. But it sounds like you found the book through a you know I, I imagine a bunch of people found the book that way, but not you. You yeah you know, no you were eighteen. I was, and I was eighteen. I was eighteen, and yeah, it was the eighties, and <laughs> yeah, um, it was just one of those books. It was kind of like a little counterculture, right? It was mm -hmm. uh, not the mainstream. It is hard to appreciate how different things were then as far as media was concerned, mm -hmm. how much you got and how different it was from from now when it feels like it's, you know, there's a river of stuff going, going past. Um, at the time, it was just kind of like, I'm sure I got it from my high school buddy who was just like, this is outrageous. You should read this. Mm -hmm. Sure. And I did. It is... Yeah, that is how a lot of books, especially at that age, too. I'm well. You're what you're saying about today's content stream. Maybe people are getting them differently. Maybe they're listening to one. Yeah, of our I mean, shows, we have we haven't know? been we haven't been eighteen super recently either. Yeah, Craig, <laughs> so we're going to talk about uh, Thompson and where this book comes from a bit before we dive into the book itself. But as anybody who knows where the book comes from knows, it is a, a blurry line between fact and fiction here mm -hmm. um andrew do you want to kick us where's what do we need to know about mr Tom, dr thompson dr hunter s thompson uh he was born in 1937 died in 2005 the big thing about him that we need to know for this work and for a bunch of his other work is he's sort of the originator of gonzo journalism um which his, his Wikipedia entry, I think, kind of defensively says, <laughs> uh, predates the name of the Muppet by a few months. So. <laughs> but, 
Gonzo journalism is a type of story where the writer sort of intentionally and pointedly inserts themselves into the story, usually told in the first person, um, shedding that, you know, customary media pretense toward uh, objectivity. Um, so yeah, we definitely get a big dose of that in this book. Uh, his first big work in this genre, though, was uh, called The Kentucky Derby is Decadent and Depraved, <laughs> which is a... <laughs> It's another great title from him. Uh, this was a sort of a follow-up to to that. Uh, it was its genesis is as like a photo caption assignment for Sports Illustrated. Basically, he was sent to Las Vegas to cover this race, which we'll talk about. Um, and he came back to Sports Illustrated with this story in something like its current form. They said, no, we aren't publishing this, <laughs> though. I think later they would come to sort of claim credit for inspiring it or being like the genesis of it. But at the of time, they were not would. interested. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> um, and it was uh, instead serialized in Rolling Stone, published as a book the next year. Um, he was a pretty political guy. Uh, there was another Fear and Loathing book that was done in 1973 called Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, 72. Um, he talks in this book a little bit about how much he hates Richard, Richard Nixon. He talks a lot more in this book about how much he hates Richard <laughs> Nixon. Um, and it's, yeah, not as much drug-fueled mayhem, I don't think, but still, like, you know, humorously exaggerated uh, critique of the cozy relationship between politicians and the political press. These are all things that kind of define him as a, as a personality. Like, he is... he. Um, had a lot to do with like the genesis of modern political writing. Um, he, yeah, he did the gonzo journalism thing. Craig, do you have other stuff on, on him? I'm mostly focused on his work because it's so autobiographical that I feel like we come to an understanding of him through reading it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah I, I mean, the, the, his path to journalism from what mm -hmm. I could find sure. was he started working at his school paper in Kentucky uh, and got, ejected from it because he was an accessory to car theft uh <laughs> and so then, he started putting himself in the story really early i on. guess mm -hmm. so uh and he did not graduate they did they did not let him graduate so he joined the air force uh, he was working at a base in florida and kind of lied his way into a sports editor position covering the football team like from the base i think or from the local town and then he was recommended for an early honorable discharge because they said that he would not be guided by policy uh, was their take on him as a person. And so he <laughs> needed to not be in the armed forces. Mm -hmm. uh, and then he wound up living in Big Sur and, you know, was out west where a lot of the beats were um, and kind of fell in with that crowd. He was writing for the National Observer and um, falling into the Berkeley like hippie scene. And then in the mid 60s, he gets hired to write a profile for the Hells, uh, not for the on the Hells Angels motorcycle <laughs> gang. Um, and there's references to that in this book where he talks about in, in Fear and Loathing, where he talks about kind of the the hippie movement and the kind of academic new left clashing with the, you know, anti-authority biker gang of Hells Angels and that whole culture and kind of diagnosing the inability of those two groups to like, you know, work together as part of the, the problem from his perspective of that era. And that's not a gonzo story, though reportedly 
the Hells Angels found out that he was like writing it and beat him up. And then that became part of the publicity of the book <laughs> uh, when it became a book. Um, and then he kind of, you know, parlayed that into a bunch of his assignments in the early 70s, mm-hmm. one of which was when he uh, ran for sheriff of in Aspen, Colorado on a platform like the Freak Power Movement. <laughs> <laughs> which was like he it's wanted good, to do dec- good name for your movement I de- think. decriminalize drugs disarm the police he wanted to rename aspen fat city so that it would deter investors like he wanted it to have a bad <laughs> name <laughs> and he might have won the race because it was a three it was like a three-way race but then the republican dropped out and so the, the democrat ended up winning and he wrote about it for rolling stone which is how he met the guy who wound up publishing uh this in, in rolling stone but then the Gonzo thing kind of takes over his whole persona and he spends the rest of his career in what a lot of people have said, kind of poor self imitation, mm-hmm. you know, in the stories after this one and after the second fear and loathing, you know, political story, he goes to cover rumble, you know, the Ali rumble in the jungle fight and like misses the fight. Cause he was drunk in his hotel room <laughs> and he wind he goes to Vietnam uh, and he's there during like the fall of Saigon, but he doesn't end up publishing anything about it for 10 years. He's just like, you know, his alcohol and drug use ramps up to the point where he's not really doing his job very well. And he is chasing the high, no pun intended, of like what the peak of his work was. Yeah. Uh, this, this work is sort of predictive of that pattern in, the, in that yeah. way, which is, yeah. <laughs> and you, you said he was a political guy, Andrew. He had some mm-hmm. interesting opinions you know he was a gun and explosives enthusiast but he was also kind of anti-government control and he had affection for international workers of the world but and supported drug legalization he had some other thoughts about the bush cheney era that were critical of the administration but i'm not going to repeat other things that he may have said (laughs) about what that administration was responsible for oh no um (laughs) just asking questions uh-huh So, yeah, but this is this is like the book. This is the Hunter S. Thompson thing. There's plenty of other stuff that he wrote that you can read. And I think some of the other articles like the Derby one would be interesting things to go read if you are, you know, if you've found him a compelling voice or you're, you know, you want to explore that era. But for lack of anything else like this is the Thompson Mm -hmm. text. And I don't there are other people who have done gonzo journalism, but I think, you know, he's the one who did it and it is synonymous with him um i mean you trace all kinds of like modern blogging and and like personal uh, pieces <clears throat> back to the the gonzo journalism style just the, the way that people are more willing to be personal and to have the story be like sure. about them and their experience of a thing i think it all kind of goes back to this in a way though though it's those are certainly less uh <laughs> uh what's the word i want like incendiary than this <laughs> yeah yeah and this this work has a lot of hyperbole in it mm-hmm. sure um we think it, i mean maybe not maybe not I don't know. It? maybe it was all there, true but... i don't know <laughs> yeah did you guys see on um mental floss a while ago there was an excerpt from um hunter thompson's biography written by eugene carroll she knows oh, some interesting well. men um <laughs> It's his like routine that starts at three o'clock in the afternoon and goes until eight o'clock the following morning. And like most of the entries are cocaine, cocaine, drinking shiv is regal, cocaine, cocaine. Oh gosh. It's bananas. Yeah. 
they, they said that the the cocaine use is really what kind of broke him down. Mm-hmm. That was, you know, he was into drinking and what dexedrine. Yeah, were oh, his boy. two his two loves. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when he added cocaine, it, it kind of messed him up. Um, broke that balance. Oh, yeah. yeah, right. Um, and yeah, this we'll talk about. I mean, guess some of the other characters in this book anything about else about the background that y'all are interested yeah go ahead dave i just wanted to point this up it was interesting to me that the three books that he's sort of famous for the hell's angels the fear and loathing and the fear and loathing on the campaign trail were all written between 66 and 74 Mm -hmm. yeah so that's eight years when he was sort of in his prime i guess and then Mm -hmm. after that the wheels fall off the wagon maybe or maybe not depending on your view of this guy but it seemed like a really tight, intense period in his life, and then it was over. It also seems like it's wrapped up in what he was covering and what he had to say, too, because, you know, he was older than some of the boomers in the hippie movement that he was covering. Like, he wrote some piece uh, in 67 kind of critiquing what the hippie movement had become um, and that it was not politically active enough and things like that mm-hmm. and then he also uh it wasn't him it was another writer talking about w- what could he say about reagan that he hadn't already said about nixon like he called nixon a werewolf like hyperbole is his best tool and like what would he have to say to people about people after nixon yeah mm-hmm. um and so maybe he just you know as you say andrew other people took up the mantle but then also maybe his particular voice was just not as suited. It's also th- the thing where like he was part of Rolling Stone magazine when it was only like three or four years old. And it's mm-hmm. like this big brand new thing that is appealing to a young generation interested in reading stuff like this. And then the next generation is going to be interested in something else. You know, it feels more like it feels like a pop music like window in that way yeah. of like, you know, who breaks through and similar to not calling him the Beatles, but like, you know, <laughs> their, their, their era is always shorter than I think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm listening. Hey everybody, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever find that you're like trying to fall asleep? You're in Vegas, maybe you're on a trip, you're in an unfamiliar place and your brain just like won't shut up like your thoughts keep racing and and, you know you just can't tune them out when you really need to get that rest before maybe it's the world series of poker or maybe you're in town on business trip it turns out that a great way to make those racing thoughts go away is to talk them through and therapy is a great place to do that Um, you can get out of your negative thought cycles and you know find some mental and maybe emotional peace. Um, People in my life have benefited greatly from therapy. Uh, I think it can be a really grounding force in your life um, and a good routine to get in, to like get out of those cycles or to, you know, examine when things have changed in your life. Uh, So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible and, you know, suited to your schedule. So if you are in Vegas on work, maybe you shift your hours or, or whatever, you reschedule for another time. You just fill out that brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash Overdue today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Overdue. So let's set the scene. Mel, you said you brought some stuff on Vegas. Maybe we can dive into more of our Vegas experiences as necessary. But I'm as the person who has never been there, <laughs> has only traveled there through film and TV. And now, you know, my, my two films I think about are Austin Powers and Ocean's Eleven, you know, two <laughs> touchstones for me. 100% uh, that. It is exactly that. Yeah. yeah. Great. Okay, good yeah, to know. That's it. Uh, but oh, it was, uh, Paul maybe Blart, it was Paul Blart Mall Cop 2, don't forget. Oh, you're right. That movie. I did see that movie. <laughs> yep. Yep. Viva Las um, Vegas with Elvis Presley. Come on, you have to have seen that. I have never seen Viva Las Vegas without with uh, whether it had Elvis Presley or not. I don't know if there's another movie called that, but not oh, that no. one. Mars Needs Women. No. No. Mm. Oh, Mars Attacks is that in was Vegas, it? Though. Mars Attacks. Yeah, yeah, that was it. So Mel, you said you had a little bit on the on the history yeah, of, I of I our favorite town. Give us a little romp through Las Vegas history. Um, it was founded in 1905. But nothing really gets interesting until the 1930s. Three major things happened. They had very lax divorce laws. Gambling was legalized. And the Hoover Dam was built. So that brought a lot of people out to the desert. Mm -hmm. In the 1940s, Bugsy Siegel, who was a gangster, decided that he wanted to make Las Vegas into a gambling mecca. And he built the Flamingo Casino. There was also the Thunderbird, the El Rancho, and the Golden Nugget. And these were built on the Strip and also on Fremont Street, which is kind of like the downtown area. Fremont Street now is covered with a – what is that thing? It's kind of like an electronic <laughs> canopy. Yeah, it's called the <laughs> Fremont Street Experience, but it's, it's just a – And it's it's – a light sh- it's a yeah. light show overhead. So Fremont Street used to be this kind of downtown gritty. That's where the old casinos were. And it couldn't really compete with the Strip. So mm-hmm. they made the Fremont Street experience. And now you can go in there and it's like light shows overhead. And it's a huh. like pedestrian. Sure. Walking. Yes. Okay. I, I can okay. picture it in my... Oh, I've also seen Chris Angel on television. So (laughs) amazing. We saw him in Vegas one time just like walking around. Was he doing magic? He was not doing magic. He was just walking. Mind freaking anyone? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it mind freaked me to see him. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Bugsy Siegel builds the flamingo. He had a lot of connections in Hollywood. So this is when the kind of freeway between like the Hollywood movie stars and Las Vegas started happening. Okay. They went there to get married and divorced (laughs) and gamble and sunbathe by the pool. And it was all very glamorous in the fifties. It kind of expanded that even more. This is when Liberace started playing there. He was paid. The, oh, why would you leave with Liberace when? Because he was paid the <laughs> unprecedented amount of fifty thousand dollars a week. Yeah, well, in the fifties. Yeah, come on, that's a lot. He was playing the piano at the Riviera. So, Ooh. yeah, mm-hmm. Frank Sinatra, Wayne go. Newton. They both made their debuts at the Stardust Casino, which cost ten million dollars to build, which at the time was outrageous. This was also when they were setting off the atomic bomb about 65 miles <laughs> right. northwest of this Great. 
Yep. And people would actually like, they would make announcements at the hotel. So you would go out onto like the veranda of the hotel From and watch the maximum radiation exposure, watch the yeah, mushroom yeah, cloud. Yeah. Very exciting. Into the 60s, this is when we get the Rat Pack and Ocean's Eleven, which is the version of Las Vegas that lives in my mind. That's the one I always want to go to. <laughs> the Rat Pack was Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Peter Lawford, and Joey Bishop. And they were all there to make Ocean's Eleven. And then they performed at night comedy, music, dancing. In 1964 is when Elvis filmed Viva Las Vegas. With Anne Margaret. What a bombshell. And then a few years later, Elvis did a residency at the International Hotel. He played 57 shows in 29 days. Nope. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot of singing. That's a lot of Elvis. <laughs> this is maybe peak Las Vegas. You know, men are in tuxedos. The women are beautiful and all dressed up. People are drinking mm -hmm. martinis. It's all super swanky. And then the 70s happened. <laughs> And all of the mm. like casinos that had been built in the 40s and yeah. 50s starting to show their age. They're getting a little shabby. Mm -hmm. The strip was lined with tourist traps. And the performers now were considered kind of passe, right? The people who'd been popular 20 years ago are like still singing in Las Vegas and performing the same crap they've been playing for 20 years. And this is the version of Vegas. <laughs> that Hunter S. Thompson drove into. Um, at this point, Howard Hughes, who had been the largest landowner in Las Vegas, owned the biggest casinos. Um, he was probably like the most powerful person in Vegas. He had left at this point. He was like, mm -hmm. Vegas is over. <laughs> and the whole thing just kind of felt like a party that was on its way to winding down. Huh. When the red Cadillac <laughs> pulled into town with Hunter S. Thompson behind the wheel. <laughs> yeah, my experience at Vegas was all like early to mid 2010s, kind of like slow recession recovery. Like you've got hotels that they started building and just like abandoned. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh man. And the tourism industry is just like fading a little bit. Like it, it was yeah. good. Like the... There were a lot of people there when I was there because there was that that big consumer electronics show. There are just gobs and gobs of people. But yeah, sure. if you talk to like cab drivers early on and then Uber drivers later, <laughs> they would they would tell you, you know, we're we're busy this week. This is good, but it's not it's not always yeah. like this. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's still the case now. Like it's been a while since I was there. But um, the I was looking up how many I was curious about how many people go there now and leading up to. 2020, it was about 42 million visitors a year, mm -hmm. which is something like 88,000 people a day. Wow. That's a lot of people. <laughs> That's a lot of people. That seemed like a lot of people, um, yeah. But in 2020 and 2021, it dropped way down, of course. Yeah. Way down to 32 yeah. million. But, and still. That's still pretty good. <laughs> like, yeah. I didn't, yeah. I didn't do hardly anything <laughs> for like two years. So. Yeah, no, we didn't. No, we didn't either. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, it's just so big out there in the desert like i, I mm -hmm. like to walk through cities most of the time like i'll, oh. I'll go to oh, yeah new yeah, york for that. like a work thing and get to penn station and there'll be something in lower manhattan and i'll be like you know walk it's not that far mm -hmm. <laughs> but <laughs> vegas like you can see everything but nothing is walkable because it's all yes. so much further away from you than it looks like and that's my big that that is my impression of it as a like a 
Midwesterner, Midwestern to, to East Coaster is. Yeah. Wow, it's a lot of space, isn't it? Yeah, accurate. <laughs> it's true. You just walk and walk and walk, and you never get close to that giant mm-hmm. thing you can see. Mm-hmm. Are there other places y'all have traveled or covered on your show that remind that like feel like Vegas at all, mm-hmm. or is it truly? Like from Mars, its own place. Like you can't, Dave. You are nodding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think Vegas is like any other place. Mm-hmm. It, there's just just an enormous amount of consumerism. There's yeah. just so much. Uh, it's so large and so larger than life. And unlike anything that the world has produced, like it is an amazing artifact of our time. Mm-hmm. Um, I also feel like there are so many contradictions, right? You can have a group of women there for a bachelorette weekend and they're going to just get silly because they left their kids and their husbands at home and they're going (laughs) to have lots of drinks and have a good time and it's mostly pretty innocent, right? Mm -hmm. But then there could also be in that same room, in that same casino, someone who is so in a hole that they're losing their house yeah. And they're probably just imploded their marriage and mm-hmm. they're just like all in, let it ride. I'm sure I can turn it around on the next hand or the next roulette wheel. Yeah. And like that is tragic. Like mm-hmm. that's very, very real. Mm-hmm. And then there's, you know, idiots like us that would just be like, okay, I got a hundred bucks. I'm going to play blackjack until it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And like there are fantastic restaurants and really amazing art galleries. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Adele is there and Barry Manilow just did a residency there and Cirque du Soleil. But then there's also like the seedy underbelly. Yeah. And then real people actually live there. That's I found a and this can kind of transition us back to the book specifically. I think I found a, a KNPR story from when was it 2021 we were celebrating you know the 50th anniversary of the book and was asking people from vegas like what they think about it and like Mm -hmm. a guy who grew up there at the time was like you know it was as you were saying um it was was documenting this like transition into a new las vegas like out Mm -hmm. of that rat pack era uh and the but the strip is really beginning to take off as a as people are investing in it. Um, And it had this, like the official reaction was, Hey, why are you describing Vegas this way? Like, it can't all be like, you know, monsters hanging from the ceiling all the time. Please don't say that. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, you're getting a lot of people interested in Vegas and it would not (laughs) be bad to have more people interested in coming out here. Uh, And kind of the dichotomy, the another contradiction, right? Is like, if you grow up there, if you're from there, you may not be partaking in that at all, but it is what Vegas for many people is like is selling to other, right. you know. Mm-hmm. Please come here. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. um, I, I, I mean, I think that's a really fascinating duality of Las Vegas is that they are trying to pitch themselves as family family friendly and they've got, you know, roller coasters and you can drop the kids at the pool and have a great time. Mm-hmm. And, but there is also the, what's, you know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, Yep, which has a lot of subtext with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, it's an amazing piece of marketing. Uh, but 
you know, those two things together, like they are there. <laughs> you enter mm-hmm. that city and both of those things feel right. They are, you know, it is, it is this sort of Disneyland for adults in good and bad ways. Sure. Yeah. 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 And it's also, I think like a lot of, like, it, it makes me think of New Orleans, which is another city I've been to where I get this vibe. But if you wander very far off of like the, the touristy strip at all, you um, like, you'll, you'll encounter some tension probably with like local people who are just trying to live in a neighborhood yeah. in a city yeah. <laughs> yeah. instead of having, you know, encountering these tourists who are all like, you know, treating their city like a big playground slash toilet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I was on the, the, the food topic is interesting because it's never what I think about first, but I have like, there's a restaurant called Lotus of Siam that I went to uh, pretty much every time I was there with a group of like other tech journalist people. And it's like really amazing Thai food in this little like hole in the wall in Las mm-hmm. Vegas. It's just, you wouldn't expect the food to be great, but it can be, which is neat. Because it's not all a casino, and that's yeah, the thing yeah, that yeah. I have to like remind myself mm-hmm. of, uh, no matter what this book tells me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Andrew, I want to, I'm gonna, I'm gonna nominate you oh boy. to do our first version of like the summary of the whole book. Mm-hmm. It's not a long story, no. so it might be good to just like lay out what it is, and then we can kind of pick our way through it as we're interested. Sure. Um, so there is a guy named Raul Duke, who is the, like the Thompson self-insert character. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he is in Las Vegas with his attorney, uh, a guy who's also called Dr. Gonzo and also called a uh, quote, 300 pound Samoan. <laughs> this guy is a stand in for a real person named, uh, Oscar Zeta Acosta. We should, I feel like we should mention up top, like he kind of objected to Thompson's like changing of his race in this book. Like he was a Mexican American attorney and a writer and part of the Chicano movement. Um, He was friends with Thompson for a a few years, but then Thompson did this book that, that changed both changed his race. And also he alleges like Thompson took some ideas for the framing of it and like the American dream aspect of it from like conversations that they had and their relationship kind of fell apart after this. Yeah. Cause they, they met when he was in LA covering um, the death of Ruben Salazar. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. the story I read was that they were like, uh, let's go, maybe we should get out of LA. Cause it's like really fraught and go talk about some of this stuff. And he got the sports illustrated gig, mm-hmm. but I, I had not heard about the him being frustrated with the depiction though. I am. Um, makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. <laughs> um, so these these two have flown to Las Vegas because Duke is covering this. Um, covering is such a such a <laughs> stretch in this case. Yeah. I yeah. mean, even even if he went and did exactly the job he had been hired to do, which he definitely doesn't, it was like a two hundred fifty word photo caption for a, right. Like that's a such picture. a bananas assignment. Yeah, yeah. Go to I, Las Vegas. We'll put you up in a hotel and write captions for these photos. Like, what? Um, <laughs> so it's he says the sporting editors had also given me three hundred dollars in cash, most most of which was already spent on extremely dangerous drugs. 
The trunk of the car looked like a mobile police narcotics lab. We had two bags of grass, 75 pellets of mescaline, five sheets of high-powered blotter acid, a salt shaker half full of cocaine, and a whole galaxy of multicolored uppers, downers, screamers, laughers, and also a pint of tequila, a quart of rum, a case of Budweiser, a pint of raw ether, and two dozen amyls. I don't even know what all that stuff is. I had to do a lot of Googling. Yeah, I am so like... (laughs) Cocaine sounds like terrifying to me. I've never... It sounds like the scariest thing in the world. Yeah, like... (laughs) So these these two guys have this uh, rented red convertible that they're crashing around in. They are doing drugs literally the entire time. Yeah. Um, and just generally uh, terrorizing everyone they come across, starting with a, a hitchhiker kid who d- has no idea what he's gotten into when he gets in their car. <laughs> um, the, the entire story is told from Duke's perspective. And you only get the thing that I that I find really interesting about when he interacts with uh, like hotel staff or other people like on the road or anywhere else in Vegas is you don't you don't really know how these people are responding to Duke and Dr. Gonzo, but you do get the impression that everybody is just absolutely terrified of them. (laughs) Yeah. He keeps (laughs) saying that like, Oh, it's a great town to be high in, Mm -hmm. but they seem to be a unique brand of high or (laughs) on a different level. Mm -hmm. That is Um, scary. So like that's in terms of plot, that's that is a, a lot of it. Like there there are other little peaks and valleys. Like they they go to the the race to cover it, and before too long, the like the motorcycles and everything that are they're riding around have kicked up so much dust that nobody can see anything anyway. <laughs> so it would have been hard to fulfill the assignment in the first place. Um, and they they you know they go back to the hotel they have another bad time after that the attorney leaves and comes back like he's he, duke gets another assignment to cover this big like cop conference about the drug crisis which is yeah <laughs> um and, and he goes and he realizes the how little knowledge anybody there has about the actual like drug crisis or anybody doing any drugs at all like it's all kind of reefer madness nonsense it sounds like yeah. Uh and then they wreck another car and then they like get on a plane and go home. <laughs> like, it's not a super complicated book narratively. But you left out the part where they assault two women, but maybe we'll circle back around. Yeah. 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 Not, uh, there's a lot so of good. there's there's reprehensible stuff in this oh, book. Throughout. Shot through with reprehensible. And stuff. I'm I'm not here being like depictions equal endorsement, but it it is a book that he, he and a, an article that he says is part of his experience. So mm-hmm. that's that that does make that stuff harder to read because it is like a first person account. Yeah. From the from the author's, you know, self insert character. Then mm-hmm. it would be if like here's a story about a guy that we don't right. need to like like, right? Yeah. Right. But I like don't know, so, was there go ahead, Andrew. Yeah, I just wanted so if there's any other like individual plot stuff that we should talk about like the 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 assault of the women or any of the like casual racism or any of that like we could talk about that and then also you get every once in a while uh thompson will like turn to the camera and be like hey this is Mm -hmm. i actually have something to say also and here's what it is (laughs) like you'll have little political statements that are i think the most interesting stuff they are i agree it endures but yeah Yeah. agree 100 percent. and they're tiny 
Yes, like absolutely. you get a paragraph <laughs> here and then 35 pages of drug use later, you get another paragraph <laughs> um, of, of little bits. And I think in my, uh, in case this isn't obvious, all of this is played for laughs, right? It's mm-hmm. all yeah, played for much, yeah. this is funny and listen to this humorous thing that happens when I'm terrorizing these people mm-hmm. or scaring them or they're scaring me or whatever. Yeah, just the just the the that list of drugs that I read is a good example oh of how extreme the book goes, and it, it it's it is that extreme because it's trying to be a, a little bit because it's trying to be funny. Like it's it's just playing everything so big and so broad that yeah, it can't the, not be a little funny in places. The end of the first part because it's two parts. One is the the Mint four hundred assignment, and the second is the Narcotics Conference assignment. I think it's the end of the first one before Dr. Gonzo leaves when he's like high on mescaline and he's in the bathtub <laughs> kind of losing his mind. He's been waving a knife around <laughs> and he is he wants Duke to like assist him with suicide in the tub by dropping the radio <laughs> in the tub. Mm-hmm. And Duke instead pranks him by th- throwing a grapefruit into the tub at the uh-huh. exact moment in the song they're listening to that he would have dropped the radio and like that is the that for me was like oh that yes he played a prank this is goofy but we're also dealing with like attempted drug addled suicide yeah and and then yeah then he goes and lays down on the bed and he has one of the like two paragraph introspective moments i don't know if that's the one that's the wave speech or something else but it's like it's it's very jarring. Do you have it pulled up? Um, I don't. I have the wave speech pulled up, but I don't have the the tub thing. The the thing that's interesting about the the wave speech is that it is like it's when he's talking about uh the way that drug use has become like this is what we're doing instead of like direct resistance to you know what does he say? Um, there was a fantastical fantastic universal sense that whatever we were doing was right, that we were winning. And that I think was the handle, uh, that sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil, not in any mean or military sense. We didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. There was no point in fighting on our side or theirs. We had all the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. So now less than five years later, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas, look west, and with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high watermark that place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. And I think he's talking about his experience in the drug culture in San Francisco. Uh, but if you look at that clip, like on the page, and then look at the end of Gatsby, it's like very, very similarly structured. Mm-hmm. He's doing that on purpose, I think, for all the American dream stuff. And yet that is coming, you know, after he punked his friend with a grapefruit. <laughs> in a bathtub. I found those, those like little snippets where, like good writing is coming through and he's being really lucid and deliberate. I found those a little frustrating because the rest of the book to me is like, oh, you're so sloppy. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> get it together. Yeah. It, it reminded me of um, when Adam Sandler is playing <laughs> really dramatic roles. I get like, I love him as a dramatic actor, but I also yeah. get really angry because I'm like, if you can do this, why are you doing that other thing so much of the time? Like do the work to do this. It's mm-hmm. so much better. 
In your yes, memory like of- just to compare Hunter S. Thompson to hey, Adam Sandler. <laughs> I think that's fair. I don't know. Really I mean, maybe. you went for The Great Gatsby. I went for Adam Sandler. Yeah, <laughs> it's very eclectic. <laughs> Dave, in your memory of the book, like versus you know coming into a reread, like what what had stuck around, and what were you if you were surprised to like by any passages you hadn't remembered? Like, what was that balance like? So, um. And now a tight reading of Hunter Thompson. (laughs) I wrote the sentence down because it was amazing to me multiple times. The sentence, it's early in the book. It's in chapter two. He says, every now and then when your life gets complicated and the weasels start closing in, the only real cure is to load up on heinous chemicals and then drive like a bastard from Hollywood to Las Vegas. (laughs) So let's... There's 18-year-old me reading that and being like, yeah, that <laughs> yeah. sounds like a good idea. That's, you know, that's that's awesome. Wow. Adults do that. That's cool. And there's 58-year-old me reading that and being like, that doesn't sound healthy at all. <laughs> um, and there's also the part of it that is Hunter Thompson writing a tight sentence. Man, you read that sentence yeah. and you want to cheer after that. And that mm-hmm. is just like it's a nice little bit. Right. And for me, it was very propulsive for the rest of that book. Just that there's the promise, right? That's, (laughs) yeah, this is what we're doing now. Um, so for me, like in, that's the, that's the turn from 18 to 58 (laughs) is that, you know, kind of being on for the ride and not knowing that what adults are like or what Vegas is like, or, uh, having you know any experience with any of that, it was fascinating and interesting and compelling. Um, and then being 58 and looking at that and being like, that's not good for anybody. Yeah, and then you're <laughs> reading the rest of what he's doing to that poor kid in the desert when they pick him up mm-hmm. and trying to think of it from you know his perspective or the other people in the bar or um, you know the the woman he they. Uh, shoot up with drugs and put in a hotel room and yeah, play mind games with like, Ugh. wow. And it's all presented for joke, you know? Mm-hmm. And the problem I think is sometimes it's funny. <laughs> sometimes yeah. you're like, Oh, that's hilarious. And, but boy, it goes off the rails hard. Yeah. And the, my, the, my, the biggest actual, like I laughed out loud reading it moment in this <laughs> came toward the end uh, when he's driving the second convertible, the white one, back to the airport, and he says, "I tried to put the top up, but f- I tried to put the top up for privacy, but something was wrong with the motor. The generator light had been on, fiery red, ever since I'd driven the thing into Lake Mead on a water test. <laughs> you would not, you would not seen that before. Like so much of yeah. of this book is just covering their like drug fueled binge nightmare thing for." <laughs> Right. Like in great detail. And then all of a sudden you get dropped in this like, oh, of course he drove the car into Lake Mead on a water test and now is mad <laughs> that it's not working right. <laughs> he does. That is a thing he does a couple of times where mm-hmm, he will mm-hmm. he will deliver a, a bit of action as an afterthought following something else that you're like trying to hold on to. And it can be disorienting, but I, yeah, you're right. It can also be like, most of the humor of the book mm-hmm. i i probably the one of the funnier scenes for me was when they're checking in at the cop convention and 
I I can't remember if it's Gonzo who's getting them through the line because Duke is like really messed up on something. They but both kind of trade lucid. They do yeah. Yeah. a little yeah. bit. Yeah, I um, step in. There's a there's a cop who is very upset about his like reservation and how he doesn't have a room or something. And there's something about the interaction with the hotel staff that is like this person that there's an insight into this person's relationship to cops who have checked in and dealt with them. And finally, this person is like excited to get one over on a police officer. And Dr. Gonzo like identifies that and gives him a look where they both understand each other as adversaries against the same people. And he like waves <laughs> him through and all the other like cops that are in line or agog at them because they are not at all dressed for the occasion, even though they have badges. Right. And it's just, it's that kind of thing where they are, when they're not scaring people or harming them, <laughs> there is this like, who's, who can we interact with? Who's, you know, maybe sympathetic to the state that we're in or to, you know, how we fit into the the open question of what America is in this book, because that is kind of mm -hmm. what he keeps mm -hmm. coming back to. And I think it was made some of that, I think, came like after the initial trip where he was planning on they wanted him to write some stuff about the American dream. And he was like, well, I'm going to turn this article into a book. I'll make sure that that's in there. Mm hmm. And so maybe that's why some of those passages don't feel as like woven into the action. They are more meditative um, when he's like, you know, trying to go to sleep at night rather than when he's like in the middle of a casino floor. Yeah. Like the one time they, they make like the American dream thing, like makes it into the narrative explicitly. It's in this chapter where it's like for, it's got an editor's note at the beginning of it. And it's like, Hey, we, put this transcript together from a mostly unintelligible tape. And here's, yeah. what, here's mm -hmm. what we think happened because the draft that Duke turned in was not readable. <laughs> <laughs> and they like go to a place that they've been told was like called the American dream. And it's yeah. a building that burned down three years yeah. ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then you're back to drug mayhem after that. <laughs> yeah. The title comes from pretty early. I think when he's talking about what the exact quote is, Jesus, bad waves of paranoia, madness, fear, and loathing, intolerable vibrations in this place. Get out, flee. I think that is happening maybe after he has been saddled with the hotel bill. I can't remember. But I love the phrase intolerable vibrations because now we would just say this place has bad vibes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and it's different conflicting accounts on whether or not he borrowed that from like Kafka or Nietzsche. He, he's used it in other stories that he's written. And it is, I know, I I think a couple of the definitions I saw and like kind of people unpacking it, it is about like your relationship to authority and your relationship to like people and systems that you're in and you are both afraid of them and you loathe them for the power they have over you. And also he's a, you know, high on five different things and, <laughs> you know, thinks that they're going to come get him. <laughs> uh, any other stuff that like stood out? I mean, do we should talk about, Lucy and talk about that hotel cleaning lady both mm -hmm. in act two I think because that is those are like scenes that happen in, in a book that has a lot of like little vignettes mm -hmm. I don't know Mel where do you want to start on either of those <laughs> I mean <laughs> you brought, they brought them up earlier yeah you guys would not want to see my notes 
Oh. <laughs> I, I was just – okay. I found an article. This is um, this is going to be a little bit of a journey. Sure. I found an article on electric literature mm-hmm. that spoke to three people who live in Las Vegas to get their feelings about this book and mm-hmm. how they think it represents Las Vegas. And – They talked to two women and one man, and one of the women made a really good point, which is she's also a writer, and she said she feels like it's really important to think about when you're assessing a book, is this book written for me? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. very clearly, I think this is not a book written for women. Sure. And she also said that she doesn't feel like it's a book written for people who live in Las Vegas because- yeah. It, it completely doesn't pay any attention to the people who live there, except that in addition to these guys treating women really badly, they treat almost everyone really badly, particularly yeah. mm-hmm. the people who work and live in Las Vegas. Um, so that part of it was like a little hard for me to swallow. And I should just say, like, as a person, I have a very low tolerance for like sloppy characters Mm -hmm. (laughs) being like so messy and high and dramatic and hallucinating and fighting like that whole scene with the tub and the radio and the grapefruit yeah like part of me was like oh this is really like that's a really sad scene right like that's really serious Mm -hmm. but it's written for humor and then i kind of went all the way around the emotional spectrum to just like being completely out of patience and you guys are so like you're so gross. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There were there were there were multiple points where I just wanted to be like, I'm going to sit you in an empty room with a pitcher of water for yes. three days and a and shower. I don't wanna, yeah, I don't want to see you until after <laughs> yeah. that time has elapsed. Like, yeah, put it together. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> the the stuff in Act Two, the like the these characters would be bad hangs. I would not want to be with yes. them no. in yeah. Vegas yes. or out of Vegas. Yeah. Yes. And yeah, the stuff they do in the second act that's even worse is like, right, he Gonzo has found this young girl, Lucy, on the plane back, and she's like a straight edge Christian. So he's given her LSD and then they, you know, gaslight her and put her in another hotel and tell her that the cops are going to come get her and that they've already taken Dr. Gonzo. So and then like, that's it. That's okay. We did that too. We did that. Wasn't that funny? And then there's the the cleaning lady that they like mm-hmm. attack. Yeah, attack. he like yeah. strangled her, right? Uh-huh. And then you know, act like cops that are undercover, and they need her to be their informant, and she's really into it. And that's how they keep cleaning people out of their room for three days. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, the, the the juxtaposition of always being paranoid about getting caught and thrown in jail, which is like pervasive throughout the book and the extent to which neither of them ever suffers a single consequence for anything yeah. that they yeah. do. Oh, that's is a really, really good point. Yeah, yeah. It's really striking to me. I yeah. Think. Well, and I read a, an interview with the um, cartoonist who did the graphic novel oh, yeah. version. His name is Troy Little. And he said, you couldn't imagine fear and loathing happening today. You'd be caught on video and arrested immediately, <laughs> which, yes, 100%. Mm-hmm. I certainly hope so. But then he he said this. I think you can vicariously read fear and loathing and imagine yourself in that situation. It's madness and it's fun. It's ridiculous. 
And I've like, I really responded to him saying it's fun because at no point did it seem like these characters were having fun for me. Yeah. It just felt like very kind of desperate mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. intense and searching and filled with dissatisfaction that they're trying to kind of alleviate <laughs> yeah, by yeah. taking all of these drugs and having all of these experiences. And I just wonder, I don't know what it would take for me to read it as fun. And I wonder if other people read it as fun because I sure didn't feel like it. Yeah. I think, I think it is funny frequently, but fun is not the, not the word I would use. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think he gets to that point a little bit right at the end when he's talking about the cop conference and how it had been, it was a waste of time and it was just an excuse for cops to go and spend time in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. Um, he says of the cops, they're still burning the taxpayers for thousands of dollars to make films about the dangers of LSD at a time where acid is widely, widely known to everybody, but cops to be the Studebaker of the drug market, the popularity (laughs) of psychedelics has fallen off so drastically that most volume dealers no longer, no longer even handle quality acid or mescaline, except as a favor to special customers, mainly jaded over 30 drug dilettantes like me and my attorney, like there's the, and, and it keeps going a little bit. (laughs) there but it is like this moment of self-awareness about like how sad and desperate they are to like chase this high by just grinding up a million pills and like snorting them up their nose (laughs) yeah yeah he's not not aware of that aspect of the of the trip but it doesn't seem to be what makes it into most like assessments of, of the book you know yeah one of the things that i thought was interesting was the insights that he had about our culture were frequently drug related <laughs> themselves, <laughs> right? Uh, you can tell where a culture is by looking at the drugs that it's consuming, or you can tell how much these people are a part of this culture by how they refer to drugs, what words mm-hmm. they use and what terms they use. Mm-hmm. And he br- brought that up a couple of times and I was like, okay, that's interesting. And then of course he dashes off into <laughs> the psychosis. after that. <laughs> The thing that I have a quote pulled where he just said, we are all wired into a survival trip now. Mm-hmm. Like that's the other. And that was a line that like just struck me mm-hmm. as kind of timeless in the in the like the way he talks about the Nixon era and, you know, the tra- everything that had occurred, you know, going into the counterculture movement and like what we were moving into now and him kind of having a bad view of all of it. Not like not only just the people in power, but the people in you know, at all levels responding to it. And that line stood out to me as like a, yeah, that could be a pretty universal experience of just like, I don't know what we're supposed to do, man. Like I am just going to get in a car and go to whatever my equivalent of Vegas is because, you know, world's on fire. Like that, that felt true to me beyond the confines of this Mm -hmm. book. And then he gets more specific where he's like reading that newspaper that has all of the terrible things that are happening in the world. And he's like, my crimes of whatever I did to that hotel room are not as bad as this. And also they're going to lock up Muhammad Ali for not going to Vietnam. Um, So, yeah, it's an interesting. Stretch there where he you're you're right, Dave, to point out that he's using drug lingo almost all the time, Mm -hmm. um, even when he's having deeper insights i suppose (laughs) (laughs) one of the things that i kept sort of thinking about and i 
never came to rest on is so our culture has a number of people who have played drunk for funny right mm-hmm. um so um, foster brooks did it a long time ago and then there was dean martin and then um bobby moynihan's drunk uncle on saturday night live and sure homer to a degree on from the simpsons mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's a type and hunter thompson is close to that type but not quite mm. <laughs> right i'm like it's close he kind of um, name checks that in the um, in the passage on ether right where he's like you're kind of <laughs> like the village drunk when mm-hmm. you're on ether and everybody loves having you around yeah <laughs> yeah and so i was trying to figure out for me like what are the differences between drunk uncle and hunter thompson drunk uncle's a little bit lovable why is that he's your uncle <laughs> you have to. funny drunk. And know. Dean Martin is like charming and suave somehow. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to take Hunter Thompson and like hold him under a cold shower. For yeah. A while. yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe is is some of it that you don't like. Usually, you don't go home with drunk uncle. Like, you don't need to. Yeah, you don't yeah, need to right. see every detail of. Not as much much exposure. Yeah. The the yeah. descent. <laughs> yeah. Right. I will say that every time he mentioned ether, I kind of guffawed out loud because in the beginning, after they like share that, he shares the list of all of the drugs they have in the trunk. He writes, the only thing that really worried me was the ether. Uh (laughs) That made me snort. Yeah. The only other book, I mean, the I, the only other book I've read recently that has ether in it is a very old Curious George, where George oh my God. gets what? too curious and opens a jar of ether and he passes out. This is a real. This is a real I read thing this that to your happens. son, and it was like I blew my mind. <laughs> well, because the old, the old, in the newer Curious George stuff, and I'm just gonna. This is this is one of my areas of expertise now, as I've watched and read a lot of Curious George. <laughs> The newer ones are about like how curiosity is good and you should be curious about the world around you. And the old ones, like the original ones are all about if you were too curious, bad stuff's going to happen. <laughs> you're going to break your leg and you're going to go to the hospital and you're going to pass out because you sniffed ether. And like, and that's why you shouldn't be curious. That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. I was not expecting that sentence to go towards curious George. Yeah. (laughs) Much like fear and loathing in Las Vegas, you know, you never know where you're going to end up next. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe something that can kind of wind us down is we haven't talked at all about the illustrations in the book that are Mm. like part of its signature style. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do think like I broadly enjoyed, like, I don't think I, Obviously, they're depicting all sorts of wild stuff, but like as an art style, I enjoy them. Andrew, did you say you had some stuff on just, our man? Uh, Ralph Steadman is the the guy who did them. He's a British illustrator who's still alive. He had uh, frequently collaborated with Thompson on he he did like this. He did stuff for the Kentucky Derby story. Um, he did the I think the art for a, a movie called Where the Buffalo Roam that came out in 1980. It was kind of an adaptation of this, kind of just an adaptation of Thompson and Acosta's real life relationship. Um, and then he illustrated the Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail book too. Okay. Uh, big biggest thing about him is that he sold the illustrations for this to 
uh, to Rolling Stone, I believe, for seventy-five dollars, and yeah. never saw anything else. Whoops. Um, yeah, and so he does partly because of that. He does not sell his work like independently of other stuff now. Yeah, I, they all look like extreme beer labels to me. Like I don't. Well, that's, <laughs> that's the thing. Andrew, did you not know he's done the art for all the flying dog stuff? Oh, that's actually him and not just somebody bre- doing a doing no. a Ralph Steadman thing? No, the brewery, oh, I believe they're out of the Baltimore area or somewhere in Maryland. Huh. I could be wrong. Um, but he's done a bunch of the art for them and some of it is like yeah, they're out they're out of um Maryland, but they were founded in Aspen, which I guess makes some sense maybe why he got hooked up with them through Colorado and, and Thompson and stuff like that. Huh. But the a bunch of his designs have gotten like censored because they're like too extreme. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like there was one that had some like Catholic church theming and what it was, and he like drew a cardinal in a suggestive way and you know, like <laughs> fighting the censors on on your beer bottles. But yeah, it's like it's kind of squiggly, it's kind of caricaturish. I I don't know if either of you would how else would you describe the work in this book visually? I, I mean, I fierce, <laughs> fierce. pointed. Yeah, sure. um, I actually so back in 1984, or so I saw. I had a friend who was also into Fear and Loathing, and uh, he came to the school I was at, and we saw Hunter Thompson speak. And then I went to the school he was at, and we saw Ralph Steadman speak. Um, Hunter Thompson. What my recollection of that was that Hunter Thompson came on mumbled for about 45 minutes, got angry and then left the room mm-hmm. and that tracks. Yep. And then, <laughs> and Stedman was lovely. Stedman was, he was great. He came in, he was like very helpful, very, uh, open with, with his work and what he was doing. Um, and talked a lot about like his history. He grew up in, um, England during the world war two. So like his neighborhood got bombed and he talked mm-hmm. about that kind of stuff. Um, but he was just a really just charming and lovely man. And he seemed to be surprised about his relationship with, with Hunter Thompson. Um, not altogether thrilled with it, but, uh, on for the ride. Um, and that's, yeah, but nice guy. Yeah. The the work is sort of haunting. It's like trying to haunt you because it is (laughs) often either depicting, a straight up hallucination or it is trying to convey like the state of either of the two characters who are on something like the shot of uh, Gonzo in the tub, the shot of Gonzo before as like a little troll before he attacks the cleaning lady, like all of that stuff. Um, it's like, a well, I'm just flipping through and seeing one that's like a bird lady there's lizard people. <laughs> His you know. bird ladies are really good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They look like they were about to peck you. And they're they're all like black and white, like mostly line with some shading kind of stuff. It's, it's but it's pretty evocative. Famously oh, evocative splattered. For sure. yeah. Famously splattered. Oh, sure, sure. Um well yeah, that I mean I think that's fear and loathing. I'm sure we talked about everything in the book. We didn't miss anything. Mm-hmm. We never um, miss anything on, on any show about any book. That's <laughs> yeah. so, we're famous for that. Totally so. comprehensive. Does, <laughs> that's nice. Does that's nice. this book make anyone on the call want to 
go to Vegas. <laughs> I feel I'm like this no. book is, is the anti-strong sense of place book for <laughs> Las Vegas. <laughs> I mean, to his credit, he does create a very vivid portrait of a certain kind of trip yeah. to Las yeah. Vegas. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it does capture the kind of like the grittier nature of Las Vegas in the 70s as it was mm-hmm. going through that transition from the Rat Pack to what it's you know since become, which is like this international family destination with something for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel a little bit like this book and the art too, like I do about Wuthering Heights and The Haunting of Hill House, which is did not enjoy the reading experience. <laughs> have respect <laughs> for what the work is and like what, you know, the intent and how well that intent was filled. And we'll probably not read any of those again. <laughs> <laughs> but good job fulfilling your mission. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'll say I've driven past the circus circus a number mm-hmm. of times. And the vibe, even from the outside, is. That's gross. Like it's very I, I like hallucinatory. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've been but in circus circus. It is gross. I, it is yeah, hallucinatory. I've, but yeah. Now that I've having read about it, I do kind of just want to go in and take a peek. And then <laughs> <laughs> like, it does make you feel a little crazy, even if you're sober. It's, mm-hmm. It is completely over the top in there. <laughs> yeah. In every way. My experience cool. has been that Vegas is fun for about forty eight hours, and then you got to get out. Yeah, that's 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 what the book says. The book says, uh, what is it? Uh, <laughs> a little bit of this town goes a very long way. After five days in Vegas, you feel like you've been here for five years. Some people say they like it, but then some people like Nixon too. <laughs> Feels like a good. Yeah, go ahead, Dave. I wanted to mention uh, before we get out of here. His, I was surprised to find out that his son has written a book. Uh, The book is called Stories I Tell Myself Growing Up with Hunter S. Thompson. Based on what I read, not an overall positive experience, um, but interesting to sort of hear the details. Yeah. 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 I I imagine he was was a rough dad to to have a relationship with. Yeah. Frequently absent, no boundaries, Mm -hmm. lots of guns. Yep. Yep. Uh, Uh, The writer's story about him dragging his son to a Ken Kesey party in the woods where there was lots of LSD and nudity and uh, the Hells Angels showed up and things went poorly. Yeah. Yeah. And he was like five. (laughs) His son was like five. I'm not taking my son to a a Juggalo concert or whatever the equivalent would be now. It's not going to (laughs) happen. Yeah. I don't want to besmirch juggalos here, but <laughs> <laughs> if any are listening, yeah, not going to yeah. a party in the woods like that. Yeah. Um, well, Dave, thanks so much for coming on the show. Really thanks appreciate it. Us. Thank you for having us and doing what you would coin an anti book to the type <laughs> you like to cover. On the show. <laughs> if any of our listeners had a similar experience uh, thinking about fear and loathing, but would prefer to like be interested to go somewhere, like where can they find out more about your show? We're at strongsenseofplace.com or strongsenseofplace, wherever you get your podcasts. Anything that they should go check out right now, like a cool episode? For something kind of Vegasy, we recently did an episode about amusement parks and delved into 
some really great books <laughs> set in amusement parks, a little horror, a little action adventure. Um, for visiting destinations around the world, we recently did episodes on Spain and London, which were well-received. Awesome. We, I've been to London. I've never been to Spain. We just went to Spain for the first time last year, and we loved it so much. We went twice in like six months. Wow, nice. The food. Oh, the food. Mm -hmm. And the architecture. And the nice people. <laughs> the beaches. It's very nice. Yeah. It's a lovely place. Don't go to Vegas. Go to Spain. You heard it here yeah. first. That's the, that's the takeaway. Yeah. Uh, so if our listeners have uh, been to Vegas and need to share anything, I mean, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but if there's anything that you do want to share, you can send us an email, overduepod at gmail.com. Hit us up on social media at overduepod. Our theme song is composed by Nick Larangis. Andrew, folks want to find out more about our show. Where do they go? Overduepodcast.com is the website. Up there, we have the list of books that we are going to read uh, for the month, uh, right? Is this going up in September, Craig, still? This is going up in September. Okay. I can tell you the next book that's going to go up. Yeah, do it. It's uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. It was our mm -hmm. patron's choice pick for September. Can't wait to find out if they do. <laughs> I Yeah. <laughs> uh, we also have our patreon project up there patreon.com slash overdue pod uh support the show financially uh, support our children in uh, preschool and daycare uh get access to our discord server uh bonus episodes early and our current long long read project we're about to start uh emily wilson's translation of the iliad which we are very excited about yeah and yeah that'll be going up soon once again, Mel and Dave, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank it was you. really fun. Yeah, it was, it was a pleasure. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. And until we talk to you next week, please try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.